You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find Revelation 1 on page 1028 in those Bibles in the seats in front of you. We continue our study of the book of Revelation, a study that kind of has been on pause for two months. The book of Revelation is a polarizing book. And I, I remember several months ago when I let our church know that we would be studying this, I could just see in your faces the excitement of, of being able to dig into this book and study all 22 chapters and to be able to pick apart every verse with a hope and expectation that we would understand this otherwise seemingly confusing book. And we've marched through the first three chapters, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And a couple months ago, we unpacked every word and every phrase in that statement. And, and maybe you, like me, read that and said, well, maybe this book isn't so confusing. Maybe it's not so hard to understand. And, and we continued to unpack chapter 1 and saw that John identified himself as the author and he was writing to seven churches in Asia Minor. And then Jesus showed up and, and he, John described him. And yeah, there was a little bit of a, a difficulty in translating what those descriptions actually conveyed about Jesus. But we got there and then there were two chapters of letters. And after all, that's what the majority of the New Testament is, is letters to churches. And so we were kind of in that sweet spot. And while it took a little work for us to understand the context of the churches and what John was communicating, we, we worked and we got there. And so maybe you were tempted at the end of chapter 3 to think, okay, what's the big deal? And yet, as we look around us and we see how Christians respond to Revelation, there are two extremes typically, aren't there? The one side of the equation is that the people are obsessed by it. And they love going to conferences and subscribing to YouTube channels. And all they want to do is talk about Revelation. There was a gentleman who was part of our church in the early days. And I knew every time I saw his name show up on my calendar, we were going to talk about Revelation. And he would bring these sketches of this cubed city and his drawings of the beasts. And it was interesting. <laughs> But then the other side of the polar opposite is that people avoid it because it does tend to be a little confusing as symbols and concepts and topics occur in Revelation that don't occur in the Gospel of John or in Ephesians. Things like beasts and antichrists and three numbers put together. <laughs> Tribulations. Stars falling from heaven down to the earth, which, by the way, just think about that scientifically. The smallest star landing on the earth. That'd be interesting. A third of the population is dying. Horses that are different colors. Before you know it, we feel like Dorothy and her friends by saying, oh my. Listen to what G.K. Chesterton said, the famous English apologist 
He says, though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creatures so wild as one of his own commentators. And that is true, as people have put in sketches to try to understand what John is saying, as they have put together models and summaries, they can be pretty fanciful, and before you know it, it's confusing. And so what have those commentators attempted to do? What have preachers and authors attempted to do all throughout church history? They've attempted to summarize all of the seeming confusion into models. And their objective is valid. They're trying to take what usually is confusing and trying to make it clear, trying to make it understandable. And so what I want to do this morning is something that I don't typically do. In first service was a guinea pig. I asked my wife at the end of the service, how did it go? And she said, eh. <laughs> Gave me some good feedback that hopefully will contribute to, yeah, maybe better this service. But I want to do something that I don't typically do, and I'm not going to march verse by verse this morning. I'm going to just give an overview of three primary models that Christians have taken and subscribed to to try to understand Revelation. And here's my goal. My goal is not that we will be experts on the models, but that we will have a common understanding of common vocabulary that will actually reveal to us influences in our lives for the approach that we take to Revelation so that we can as best as possible lay those aside and by marching verse by verse, phrase through phrase, phrase, word by word, actually come to a biblical understanding of what John is saying. Here's the big idea in the notes. Because readers have found it difficult to understand Revelation, models have been constructed which often influence our interpretation of the book. And so I'm hoping what will happen is some of the terms that you might be familiar with, some of the terms that might make you impassioned with the book of Revelation or the end times, will be something you can be educated to understand how you got there. And we get polarizing about this. In fact, third century church father Eusebius criticized first century church father Papias in his model for Revelation, saying his model further showed him to be a person of limited intelligence. So may that not be so, that you holding one model and somebody holding another model in this church receives criticism and put-downs, but rather let's seek to understand. So let's look, number one, why is this important? Why is this important? Probably the individual, the pastor, who's had the most influence on my love for God's Word and the Christ to whom the Word points to is John MacArthur. He's the pastor of Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, the Los Angeles area. He's been on Grace to You, a radio program that has been on for decades. Some of you might even have a MacArthur study Bible that you're reading from. John MacArthur has had a tremendous influence on my life. From my earliest Christian days, I was reading his books. I was listening to his sermons online. I actually had many of his cassette tapes. By the way, let me just go back through memory lane. Cassette tapes, for those of you who don't know... (laughs) were these rectangle plastic things that actually had plastic ribbons on them that would run through this massive machine that you had to open a door, put it in, click, and would actually play audio. That's what cassette tapes were. 
And I would listen over and over and over again to his sermons. Some of those tapes actually broke because of how many times I played them. And one of the things that I could always be assured of is that no matter what passage of Scripture John MacArthur preached from, it would be clearer after listening to him than it was before. But what I loved about him is he wasn't just preaching the Word of God. He was modeling how to study the Word of God. That's what I try to do. I I learned that from him, and I'm trying to do that here to send, that for the last 13 years, I don't stand up trying to show you how expert I am and making you feel like you can't do this, but instead trying to model to you how you can join me in studying the Word of God together. And so one of the conferences that I went to when I was in seminary was a conference for pastors and church leaders called the Shepherds Conference. In fact, it will be occurring yet again in March. If you're looking for something to do, I would highly recommend it to head out to Los Angeles, download that amazing information, and then hurry back to the Midwest. But at this particular conference, he was focusing on Revelation. And he made a statement to the effect of, Why do we as Christians consider that the Word of God is the God-breathed Word? That every word is inspired, that every word is inerrant, that every word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work from Genesis to Jude. And that somehow Revelation is kind of out there as an outlier. Why do we take an approach of interpreting God's word from Genesis to Jude and then somehow think that Revelation is different? And I was convicted by that. And Revelation moved from being this outlier book of fanciful symbolism to something that not only could I understand, but I should and must understand. Because after all, what author writes a novel and then expects the reader to just throw out the conclusion? And so, friends, the answer to the question, why is this study this morning important? The answer is one word, consistency. Let us ensure as Christians that our approach to God's word is a consistent one, and that will be revealed in how we interpret Revelation. But MacArthur also said something else at that conference, and he said every self-respecting Calvinist is a premillennialist. Some of you are saying, wait, what? So let me break it down to you. So Calvinism is is a term that summarizes somebody who believes in the five points of the doctrines of grace. I myself am a Calvinist in that sense. I believe in the five points of the doctrines of grace. I believe that they are biblical. I believe that they hold up from Genesis to Revelation. And while there are a lot of scenarios in our lives that make those doctrines hard to apply, I've come to the conclusions that they are true biblically, and so I hold to them. And so, when John MacArthur, this this pastor that had influenced me for so many years, said every self-respecting Calvinist, I'm like, okay, that's me. And then he said, as a premillennialist, I said, oh, I'm going to need to find out what that means because I've got to be that because MacArthur said it. And in that study, I came to the realization of how influenced I was in my understanding of Revelation because of MacArthur and statements like that and models. 
And it led me to say, okay, what are the models? What are the influences so that I can make sure that I try to lay those aside and let the scripture construct my convictions? So let's look at the three models. Over the last several hundred years, these are the three most popular and I think most biblically defensible models. The first one is the preterist model. Would you write that down? The preterist model. Now, what I'm going to do with each one of these models is I'm going to tell you the emphasis of their interpretation, the emphasis of their focus. The emphasis of the preterist model is the past. Here's a summary of the preterist model. It is the prophecies of Revelation are fulfilled in the past. After the fulfillment, the world will get better and better because of the triumph of the gospel. So in other words, the content of Revelation, primarily chapters 4 through 19, from the preterist perspective, are events that have occurred in the past. Two primary potential applications of that are 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of the Roman Empire. So if you hold to the preterist model by in general, and by the way, there's all many, so many nuances, so many sublevels of, of these models, and I'm not going to get into all of that, and all God's people said, and you're not supposed to say amen on that. <laughs> it's just a high-level overview. It's just in general. But the preterists would say that the content of chapters 4 through 19 is about the past. It's about past events. And when those past events were complete, then there is this new era that progresses toward the point when the entire world will be converted to Christ, which will then usher in what they refer to as the millennium of bliss. And we'll get to that in just a moment. By the way, the millennium, if you, want to, if you would write this down, is basically an English term that summarizes the Greek understanding of what John says in Revelation 20, that there will be a thousand years when Jesus reigns. So millennium equals 1,000 years. And why that's important is because each one of these models kind of focuses and hinges on their conviction about the millennium, about the 1,000 years. And so the Preterist view is a post-millennial system. What that means is that Christ will return after the millennium period of the thousand years of bliss on the earth brought about by the conversion of the nations because of the preaching of the gospel. So this is the preterist view, their understanding of the millennium. And let me just walk back through history to explain how it got started and, and where its real heyday has been. In the 17th century, people started being able to look around globally and not just their village or not just their town. And they were starting to understand about the, the globe and the entire earth. And in so doing, they were recognizing that all of the, the mess of evil that had been in place in the Middle Ages was actually starting to get better. And after the 1500s and the Reformation, you started seeing entire societies that were built upon a, a horrific uh, application of slavery and starting to see that freedom was starting to occur. And so the idea that somehow the preaching of the gospel would lead to this thousand years of bliss started to get some traction in the 17th century. And then the heyday was in the 19th century as modernism started to take clear, clear vision. 
And as communication allowed us to transcend miles and even oceans, and as machines allowed books to be churned out at a a rapid pace and travel and communication and all of this and solving actual problems of humanity, the preterist view of Revelation started to get a tremendous amount of traction. But then came World War I. Then came the the Great Depression. Then came World War II, and all of a sudden, the popularity of the preterist model began to decline. The popularity of post-millennialism began to decline. But I will say this, the hallmark of the preterist model is that they encouraged the advance of the gospel. Praise the Lord. I mean, the, the, the motivation to share the gospel with, with every corner of the globe was, was commendable. It was a hallmark. But if we look at the three models and we say today in the 21st century, which ones have the most traction? Which one has the, the most expanse of followership, followership and, and writing? The preterist model would have third place. But nonetheless, it is in many respects, a worthy attempt to summarize Revelation. Now, the strength of the preterist view is in only focusing on Revelation. If, if all we're doing is focusing on Revelation, then their, their position, their, their approach has a lot of weight. But when you start to measure Revelation in light of all of Scripture, plus human history, plus societal trends, we can understand why in our 21st century the popularity of this model is not there. The second model is the futurist model. So with preterism, that was the past. With futurism, what do you think the emphasis is? Future. So in other words, the approach here is that Revelation from chapters 4 through 19 is primarily about the end of history. It's primarily about the last seven years of history. And I'll get to how they arrive there with this model. But it is generally, here's the summary, that the entire book, apart from chapters 1 through 3, prophesies events surrounding the return of Christ at the end of history. This is the futurist model. And, and as I begin to unpack this, you'll, you'll see there is a tremendous influence that we've had as Christians in America from this approach and from preachers and authors from this approach and especially the 20th century. I would encourage you to write this down because some of you might be familiar with the term, but maybe not what it means. But futurism is closely associated with an ism called dispensationalism. Would you write that down? Dispensationalism. And dispensationalism is an opportunity to recognize that God administrated his dealings with humanity and his people in different stages throughout the Bible. So, for instance, a a stage from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to Jesus, from Jesus to the church, and recognizing there are different stages, different administrations of God's dealing with humanity and his people. Here's a summary of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism divides salvation history into historical eras in order to distinguish the different administrations of God's involvement in the world. Now, the influence was largely begun by an Irish pastor and writer by the name of John Darby. 
Some of you might be familiar with the Darby translation of the Bible. John Darby was the, really the one in our modern era, era who, who, who really started this understanding of a futurist conviction of revelation and dispensationalism. In America, the, the primary father was a man by the name of C.I. Schofield. And maybe you're familiar with the Schofield Reference Bible. And what Darby and Schofield focuses on is that looking throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there were these different dispensations or stages of God's administrating his work with humanity and his people. Now, in the 1960s, that concept of dispensationalism began to advance by a man named Charles Ryrie. And some of you might be familiar with the Ryrie Study Bible. Some of you actually might have a Ryrie Study Bible. In fact, a dear lady came up to me after second service and said, I want to donate a Ryrie study Bible to the church. Ryrie's influence on the 20th century is hard to be able to capture. It is expansive. It is significant. He had a publication called Dispensationalism Today. And what Ryrie wanted to make sure we did is not forget the fact that the common denominator through all of the stages or dispensations of God dealing with humanity and his people was that faith existed in each one of them. God didn't save people by works in the Old Testament. It was always faith. And I am so appreciative of Ryrie for recognizing that. Dispensationalism and futurism have hallmarks just as preterist model has. Let me give them to you. First of all, the futurist model requires us to see a distinction between the prophecies made about Israel in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament and that they must be maintained. In other words, when we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, a futurist dispensational approach would see that, yes, there is one people of God, but God has a unique plan for ethnic Israel the fulfillment of which will occur in the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. More on that in a moment. Number two, they are premillennialists. This is what MacArthur was talking about, meaning that Christ will come again and establish a temporary 1,000-year reign from Jerusalem. And during that thousand years, all of what is understood to be unfulfilled promises to Israel will then be fulfilled at that time. Number three, they are pre-tribulation in their rapture. Now, let me just talk about the rapture. The rapture is the conviction that the church will be taken up to heaven and not experience what Revelation seems to refer to as the tribulation period. And so they are pre-tribulation, that the church will be removed and raptured before the tribulation, not to experience all of the horrors that they believe are contained in the seven years of Revelation. So the preterist model is post-millennial. The futurist model is pre-millennial. It's interesting that I didn't mention anything about the rapture with the preterist model, did I? That's because the preterists typically don't believe in a rapture. Futurists, when you think of the concept of rapture, that is primarily held to with this model, the futurist view. And within that, there are nuances. Some believe it's before the all seven years, and then others would say, well, there's a tribulation that's three and a half, and a great tribulation that's the last three and a half, and the rapture will occur before the last three and a half. And so there's nuances, but 
Futurists, by rule, are pre-tribulation in believing in a rapture. Here's some other hallmarks. They emphasize the literal application of revelation. In other words, even though there are some pretty amazing descriptions in Revelation, they would say those are specific literal events of history that will occur in the future. Things like a third of the earth being destroyed, things like the sun being darkened, they would say those have not occurred yet because we have not ever seen a third of humanity be destroyed. We've never seen the sun actually be darkened, and so they would say those are symbolic or descriptions of uh, unique wording that describe literal events that will take place in the future. If you're still in chapter 1, look at verse 19. This is one of the most crucial verses of the futurist model. Jesus tells John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And what the futurist model would see is an outline here. Jesus says, write therefore the things that you have seen. That would be chapter 1. Those things that are, those are chapters 2 through 3 in the contemporary churches to John's writing. And those that are to take place after this, and those would be the future events that are described in chapters 4 through 22. This is the futurist model. Now, I do want to highlight this because, again, the emphasis and the influence of the 20th century with dispensationalism and futurism are hard to measure. And so let me just give you two categories of dispensationalism. There's classic dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism. And again, the, the, the point of this is to perhaps open your eyes to the influences that you have had through churches or authors or pastors on how you approach Revelation. The classical dispensationalist approach sees things very linearly, linearly, on a line. (laughs) (laughs) They would see the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as progressive, as sequential. People who hold to a classical dispensational view would look for charts and love charts. I had some people reach out to me uh, early in my study saying, can you send me a good chart? Most likely you've been influenced by a futurist or a dispensational approach. So this was very popular in the 20th century. This is very popular in in the conferences that settle around prophecy and and revelation, and they want to see things lay out on a chart very neatly. That would be the classical dispensational approach. So revelation, seven years preceding the millennium, a thousand-year literal reign, and then the kingdom, that's the approach of the classical dispensationalists. Well, in the 1980s, People started studying Scripture and say, well, we still see some distinction between the church and Israel, but man, we don't see it as neatly wrapped as the classical dispensationalists, and that's the progressive dispensationalists. So they would say it's less neatly chronological. They would emphasize the already not yet, that it was inaugurated in Jesus' life and ministry, but it hasn't happened yet, and we have to wait, and the timing isn't as neat, but that would be the progressive dispensational approach. Three ways in which they're similar. Here you go. One, both believe that Israel must be restored to God in the future. 
that, that ethnic Israel will have a time in the future where they will be restored to prominence. They will receive their promises. The fulfillment will be complete. They would see a distinction between the church, not a dichotomy. In other words, we're all the people of God, but God still has a future plan for ethnic Israel. And, and one of the passages that they will really draw from is Romans 9 through 11. And so both classical and progressive dispensationalists would hold to this. But number two, they believe that Christ will return to establish a literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom. And then number three, the church will not go through the great tribulation. So regardless of where somebody lands in a dispensationalist futurist view, these are the three consistencies. This is the futurist model. The, the last one, you know, preterist, maybe you can see how that's past. Futurists, I hope you can see how that's future. But this one, this one's tough because we don't use this word a whole lot. The recapitulation model. The recapitulation model. The, the, the primary emphasis with this is not past, it's not pu- future, it's recurring patterns. Would you write that down? Recurring patterns. Another word that is associated with the recapitulation model is a realist. A realist. Here's a summary. The seals, the trumpets, the bulls speak repeatedly to actual events in human history from Christ to the kingdom and include details specific to humanity at the end of the age. This is the recapitulation model. So yes, there's no denying that there are seals. No denying that there are trumpets. No denying that there are bulls. That there are numbers associated with that. That each time that something is poured out or opened, that there are events that are described. But the recapitulation model would see this not as a historically past event, not as an event assigned literally to the last seven years of redemptive history, but instead recurring patterns from Jesus' resurrection to the new Jerusalem, and the eternal state. Here's another way to look at it. Revelation is intended to provide multiple replays of the patterns of human history from Christ's first coming to his establishment of the eternal kingdom. I'm going to use an illustration here that we all can understand. It's like a football game where a play occurs and then multiple replays are shown. Like, for instance, a slow-motion evidence that Edelman did touch that ball. For those of you who are Chiefs fans, you know what I'm talking about. Or a catch in the end zone that appears in real time that he caught it, and then they replay it, and they show, oh, I don't know, and then they show another angle, and I still don't know, and then they show another angle, oh, the ball moved. That's what the recapitulation model says about Revelation 4 through 22. That these are events that take place over and over and over again, and that this is a window into how heaven wants us to understand these events so that we can be prepared, so that we can conquer and endure from different angles, different replays, different speed. Now, how does the recapitulation model view the millennial kingdom? Most likely, if you hold to the recapitulation view, you are going to be an amillennialist. An amillennialist. And, and what an amillennialist is, is borrowing from the Greek. In the Greek, 
Whenever there's an alpha before a, a, a word, it means it's the opposite or a negative. So whenever there's something that you put an alpha in front of that doesn't typically have an alpha, then it means it's not or it's negative. And so what the amillennialist position is, and that's a mouthful, isn't it? Is that it means it's not a literal thousand years. And so the preterists are post-millennial. The futurists are typically premillennial, And the recapitulationalists would say the millennial 1,000 years is symbolic. Or in other words, the millennium is the church age and the years and the times in Revelation are to be understood for their symbolic purposes and not literally. That's how the recapitulation model would view the 1,000 years described in Revelation 20. So there's hallmarks with post-millennialism and preterists. There's hallmarks with futurists and premillennialism. But there's also hallmarks with the recapitulation model. And that's this, is that the symbolic emphasis over the literal holds up more consistently with the interpretation model of the Old Testament prophecies. So in other words... When we read Ezekiel and we read about a wheel that has faces and there's multiple eyes and there's, you know, wings of beasts and this and that, typically the interpretive model in the Old Testament is we we don't think that that's a literal wheel that someday will be in the heavens. And so the understanding that those prophecies are intended to be symbolic to teach literal truths, not necessarily literal events, is a, is a hallmark of the recapitulation model. We see this with Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, and what's interesting is how much John in Revelation leans on these books and ties into those as he attempts to describe what God has shown him. Now, let me just summarize this with all three models. All three models have two primary consistencies that I hope will help us. Number one, all three models hold to a high view of Scripture. Would you write that down? This is so important for us, beloved, because if a perspective or a conviction holds a high view of Scripture and gets the gospel right, then we must start with a position of charity. And we don't do that as Christians, do we? Boy, do we hold to our position so tightly that we don't even see these are brothers from another mother. These are brothers and sisters that hold a high view of Scripture. They get the gospel right. They they see God right. We are in agreement on the essentials. And so if that is the case, we should start with a position of charity. But then the second thing that all three of these models have in common is that Jesus is coming again. Amen and amen and amen. And friends, that's something that should stir within us a social media post of excitement. That all of the mess that we see in this world, all of the pain that we experience physically, emotionally, from our present, our past, or the expectation of the future, one day will come to an end. That one day no eye will shed a tear. That there will be no more pain. That there will be no more death. That we will dwell with our God like Adam and Eve did, unbridled and unlimited. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And all three of these models hold to that. So again, that should elicit within us charity. But as we review these three models, there's an application point for us. The preterists emphasize past with progression 
The futurists emphasize future, literal future historic events and a distinction between the church and Israel. And the recapitulation focuses more on realism and patterns and symbolism. But here's what I want us to do. Now we have a general understanding of these models. Now as you start to think about how you have even viewed Revelation or the convictions that you've had, you start to understand, ah, I was influenced by this model or a combination. But now what I want us to do is move those to the side. Because we do not want models to drive our understanding of Scripture. We want interpretive principles that Jesus and the authors of Scripture modeled and taught to us. And that's what we will do for the remainder of our study.